Now a reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen, who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, but instead dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, he looked up and saw Abraham at a distance with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great crevasse has been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot. Neither can anyone cross from there to us. The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He needs to warn them so that they don't come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will change their hearts and lives Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Here ends the reading. May God grant us a healthy dose of courage for interpretation. Noticeably absent from the parable I just read were the words heaven, hell, or devil in English or Greek or any other language. But there's a good chance that many of us already squeezed this parable. And by the way, it's a parable. It's a parable, a terrifying parable, but a parable nonetheless. And most of us, many of us, I don't say most, but there's a chance that many of us in the room squeeze that parable into the theological framework known as the you know, afterlife-oriented, heaven-hell framework. But most mainline biblical scholars do not believe that this parable, remember, it's a parable, would have registered with the early generations of Christians as having much of anything to do with the afterlife because the concept of an afterlife was developed much later. It did not surprise me in the least that these topics, the afterlife and the devil and some others that are kind of lumped in there, were on your minds when I conducted this open-ended congregational survey asking for the topics of sermons you most want to hear about. Now, remember, I asked you to tell me things uh, that you wanted to hear about, and my promise in return was to tell you things that most mainline pastors learn in seminary, but for one reason or another don't talk about very often from the pulpit. Human beings, especially you all, are beautiful and unique creatures. And uh, I love the curiosity of human beings, especially of this congregation, and your desire to learn deeply about the faith and things that are important. In fact, the gift of imagination itself 
is rather uniquely human as we know it. The gift of creativity, whether used in creating beautiful handmade goods or cooking, or whether used creatively in problem-solving methods to tackle everyday chores or to more effectively grow crops or any number of things. Well, creativity, this is a uniquely human experience the way we know it. The gift of consciousness, especially self-consciousness to the extent that we human beings can engage with it, is a gift, but it also comes with a tremendous set of problems as well as benefits. In some cases, self-consciousness brings with it, well, some problematic challenges. The fact that we have sacred rituals in the human family to celebrate our own deaths. We call them funerals or memorial services. Well, you don't see a lot of other species doing this in such a formal way. It's uniquely human in the way that we do it. And then to take this event, uh, this even further rather, we ponder not only our own deaths, but human beings even ponder the deaths of other beings. In many cases, I don't know about you, people ponder the death of our pets. Years ago, after preaching a sermon on death and dying, I had a woman, I could tell. She was waiting for me at the back of the church sanctuary. That's usually bad. When I got close to where she was standing, she said, oh, thanks for your sermon today. But I couldn't, I couldn't help but wonder, Pastor, uh, my beloved cat died last year. What do you think happened to my cat after he died? And I, without skipping a beat, I said, oh, he was a cat, right? Not a dog? She said, well, yes. I said, oh, I hate to tell you this, but all cats go straight to hell. They do not pass go. They do not collect $200. I put in that last part so she'd know I was being sarcastic. Don't worry. I made sure she knew I was teasing, and I didn't make eternal uh, predictions as to her cat's soul. But here's the truth. I don't actually know. And anyone that tells you they do, well, they might. But how will we know if they know, since none of us have been there? I mean, sure, some of us write books about the 10 minutes we spent in between heaven and earth. or I'm sure there's one about hell, too, when we nearly died and we got one foot into the next world before we came back. But this is as close as most of us have gotten. I've never bought one of those books, by the way. <laughs> Solid confess, I'm a bit of a skeptic. All the language in the Bible dealing with these topics, by the way, is metaphorical, and all metaphors break down at some point. So if you're looking for a sermon that declares the Bible's clear about this, I can't help you. Not today. The Bible even seems to conflict itself on these topics. I tend to believe that's because the best we can do is speculate, since, as I said, none of us have literally seen the character we call the devil, and no living person, as far as we can tell, has been any place besides Earth, save a few folks we call astronauts. From the earliest pages of the book of Genesis, people have tended to miss obviously important points about vital, at least in our faith, biblical stories. And the devil character is no different. The creation stories in the first chapters of Genesis are one place that many modern people assume that this serpent, who is 
tempting in the story was the devil. But this overlooks the symbolic and metaphorical nature of the entire story. You see, a day in those stories, if you look at the Hebrew language, was not even intended to be seen as a 24-hour day as we understand it. On the first day, God made it. On the second day, God made The word day is the word for age, an extended period of time without a definite beginning and end. Furthermore, the Hebrew word for Adam, Adam, means generically mankind. The folks would have understood this. It would have been a no-brainer. The word, Hebrew word for Eve was Chaya, meaning mother of all the living. And the serpent was never referred to, by the way, as Satan or the devil, but as a tempter. And the Hebrew word was Nakash. If we had time, we could go through how even the names of their early family members mentioned in these early chapters are entirely symbolic, encompassing in their meaning more of a sense of beginnings of human nature and human existence and not the actual historical names of particular individuals. And so the word for Satan is not even mentioned in Genesis. Genesis is powerful. It's also incredible poetry, beautiful, deeply and profoundly meaningful. But I'm not sure it was ever intended to be literal in how we interpret it. And so I don't believe Adam and Eve were literal singular human beings, but symbolic humans uh, used for the telling stories of how humanity got started. And uh, the same could be said for another story a bit later uh, in, uh, in the book we call the Bible. We see that there was a story early on uh, in the Gospels, most of them. I know it's early in Matthew and And that's the primary, most full telling of the story, the story of Jesus being tempted by the diabolos. That's the word in Greek. You're with me? The the Old Testament books written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek. And so we see the story uh, here in the Gospels, bits and pieces of it, but we harmonize it by, by pulling them all together of Jesus being tempted by diabolos which literally means the slanderer. And we see how this story goes, and there's an important number in this story, and really that alone would have tipped off the earliest audiences listening to these stories, the number 40, when Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. The number 40 was a symbolic name for a time of great trial. In fact, it's even said by Stephen in the book of Acts that Moses' life was divided by three periods of 40, in this case, years, all of them separating great periods of trial in his life and in his, of course, leadership of the nation of Israel. The first of them, dividing him uh, into this, this period of wandering around, finding his way, then wandering around in the wilderness, and then spending the rest of his time trying to get the people where they needed to be Those 40-year divisions are not to be taken literally. So the number 40 should tip everyone off that this is really an important symbolic story as much as it is anything else. Now, the word diabolos is interesting. It's It's another very powerful, deeply meaningful word, but not until the year 1300 
that people start to take the twist on what we've come to call the devil after reading Dante's Inferno, which has a lot more to do with how most modern people understand the devil than anything that's represented in the Bible. And I'm not even going to justify airspace or our energy with talking about Dante's Inferno in a sermon because it's not a book of our faith. Okay? Look it up. For extra credit, and you, I'll put a gold star in your bulletin next week if you tell me you researched it. Enough speaking of the devil. On to cheerier topics. Let's talk about hell. In the Old Testament, the word used most often that is translated not directly into hell most of the time, but words related to what we could interpret to be hell, it refers to the, the word used most often is Sheol, and it refers to the place of the dead, but you need to know uh, there were no separate eternal destinies for good and evil people in Jewish thought. The bosom of Abraham and the place of the dead are both terms as well that refer to this Hebrew concept. And along the way, these concepts evolved into Hebrew thought into sort of levels of hell. And I think Dante bought into this later and ran wild with it. And this idea of levels in Hebrew thought, even though it doesn't really show up in biblical language, was the further down you were below the earth's surface, the worse you'd been in this life. And the closer to the surface, well, you were less bad. But we were all bad. <laughs> so there are some additional Hebrew words that can be used interchangeably uh, as we tend to translate them or hear phrases like the pit or the depths or Here's one that doesn't have a negative connotation at all. Paradise. You recognize those words from the gospel's attribution to Jesus on the cross with the thief today. I'll be with you in paradise. Now there is some debate on this topic, but many scholars do seem to think the first proper reference to hell in the Old Testament was actually not found until the book of Daniel, which was likely written 164 years before the common era. So a long ways without any mention. In the New Testament, we see three Greek words that are most often translated or phrases as hell. First, Hades, meaning simply the Hebrew equivalent of the place of the dead. So as many of you have already done upon hearing this definition, this was really a word that just continued, like this train of Hebrew thought, this development of guessing and pondering what might be after this life, you know, more of that human consciousness thing. But again, there's no real separation in Greek thought either at this point when they would use this term for a place where those people go who are good and a place where those people go who are even just a place of death. And so when that word is used, Hades, uh, it's also the same word in Paul's, one of Paul's famous scriptures that we tend to really like. And our faith in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That's Hades. Okay? The second Greek word translated as hell in the New Testament, and it's not used nearly as often, in fact, only a few references, really, is the word Tartarus. It's used most notably in 2 Peter 2.4 and is often called the place of darkness. But Tartarus, you see, was thought to be reserved as a place for angels or for messengers of God who failed to deliver messages from God that they were supposed to give. So I guess you could say it was a special hell reserve for preachers who didn't preach. 
I've often pondered what that might be like. It's not a general place where humans were sent to burn and suffer for an eternity and hell for their crimes against God or humanity. And then finally, the third Greek word that we English-speaking folks tend to translate in our English Bibles into hell is the word Gehenna. Some of you are more familiar with this, I hope. You need to know that this word Gehenna came from a very specific, actual, literal place just to the south of Jerusalem. Christians, early Christians, and Jewish people would have all known about this place. It was called the Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna comes from the same word. And basically, this place was a literal, actual garbage dump. And so to manage this never-ending, continually piling up pile of garbage and waste, they burned it. And it literally burned for more, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And when the wind blew out of the south, you can imagine how nice that smelled in Jerusalem. It was on everyone's mind when the breeze was from that direction. There was also some cultic mystery surrounding the Valley of Hinnom because, as the legends go, the cultic god Molech had offered burnt sacrifices of infants, completely innocent infants there. Legends also have it that since this ground was viewed as gross and cursed, criminals were even sentenced to have to live there and die there, spend all of their days there. So when words attributed to Jesus giving stern warning were heard, even with the word hell in them, to these ancient folks, they weren't thinking Dante's Inferno, they were thinking the Valley of Hinnom because it was on their mind already. It was a place they knew where it was. In other words, these terrifying parables, when you read into them this modern heaven-hell framework we've inserted before we pick up our Bibles, are actually a lot weirder than what Jesus would have had in mind. When he gave a stern warning and said, do not live your life in such a way that you or anyone is, goes to hell or is sent to hell or is left for hell, he was talking about this burning heap of garbage. It was the world's best object lesson. So remember, you asked me to tell you what I really think based upon my seminary training and 27 years of carefully studying the scriptures. Do I think hell is a literal burning flame-engulfed place of never-ending eternal conscious torment where people are sent to die an unending death for not believing the right things or not doing the right things? No. If you choose to hold on to it, I won't fight you for your hell. I think we can be faithful people and have different thoughts about that. But based on what I know, I cannot teach that. Most reasonable modern people realize that we actually don't live in a three-tiered physical universe. And as ancient people may have thought of it, with the earth here on this level, with heaven a level above, and with hell uh, uh, literally a level below. Do I think the devil is the singular embodiment of evil and literally inside one body roams to and fro as a single entity seeking whom he may devour? No. I wish it were that simple, actually. But do I believe that evil is real? You bet your life on it. Do I believe that hell is real? Yeah, but maybe not like most people think. You see, as long as we have people in poverty, hell is not someplace else. 
It's among us. The devil is at work. As long as we have racism, hell and evil are here, not in some other reality. As long as there is bigotry and hatred and homophobia, as long as people find all sorts of ways to use all manner of excuses to dehumanize and otherize and to discriminate against one another, all of these justifications, no matter what they are, are a very real and present evil and threaten our very existence. As long as society says, oh, you know, Boys will be boys in order to excuse sexual harassment or the objectification of women or rape. We don't have to look very far to find hell. As long as our society pays equally qualified and experienced women less for the same job and tries to make laws to govern their bodies, hell and evil are clear and present, and they're not somewhere else. They're here. As long as human beings who live on one side of a border, dehumanize human beings who live on another side of a border for fleeing obviously hell-like conditions to save their family's life. We might think hell is on the other side of the border, but it's already on this side of the border. It's here. Jesus' primary message was, the kingdom of God is among you. Present tense. His primary mission was to set the captives free, to bring heaven to earth, to make this place look like that vision we all long to see. So when we work to end systems of evil that create human suffering, we're fighting the devil and we're storming the very gates of hell. And then we're being the church that Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So today, as we celebrate World Communion Sunday at a moment by gathering around this table, remembering we're not the only Christians, let us draw strength from this acknowledgement, remembering that we are not alone at the table nor in our life's work to bring heaven to earth. We are not alone in storming the gates of hell and standing against evil and injustice and oppression as we make vows like we said upon our baptism to stand against those things. We are working with God and with our sisters and brothers and siblings in the faith and any other person of goodwill who shares that vision of a better world. Thanks be to God. We're not left to suffer at the hands of evil. We're left to overcome it with good. Amen.